Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am your host, Don, and I am, as always, joined by my co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Happy afternoon. now. <laughs> well, we're between seasons. So we have successfully concluded season two of our podcast, looking at genres, and we are kind of doing some filler episodes as we, behind the scenes, figure out what we want to do for season three. We get into our research, we get into some chats, just figuring out what we want to talk about, but we've got some really fun ideas to get into what the uh, sort of in-between the two seasons looks like. And uh, what we're going to be doing today is a little bit of a fun conversation. We did basically like a little movie night where the three of us all watched the same movie, so we're going to be discussing pixar's newest release turning red and then at the end of the episode as we have been teasing for a little bit of time now is we're gonna get into a bit of a vinyl talk we're going to chat about vinyl i'm gonna get both of your perspectives on your history with vinyl and your love of it and then we're gonna talk about how you're gonna try and convert me into the vinyl nuts that you both are so i think we're gonna have a really fun conversation about that but before we jump into that i think we might as as well go right into our normal segment of what you're listening to and uh yeah let's go ahead and uh kick that off jason you want to start us off here sure i'll start but i, I do want to just say i mean maybe it's a canadian honest and not canadian nice but who announces their filler like i've watched tons <laughs> of shows and like you know i'm sort of getting into it and then i realize oh this particular section's filler it's not canon or whatever <laughs> I mean, I suppose it would be nice to have that disclaimer up front, like, hey, this is filler. But, you know, I mean, I've never actually seen somebody announce that ahead of time. Like, hey, you know, pay attention or don't pay attention. It's, it's you know, it's fluff. But anywho, I, I digress. For me, what I've been listening to. So I got one of the two albums that I have been really, I think I talked about last time that I wanted to get uh, Robert Glasper's Black Radio 3. And it is awesome i've been listening to that a lot i mean so it you know he does this thing with a lot of other artists that kind of isn't squarely jazz or hip-hop or r&b it's kind of you know it's all of them and he's been he's done that for a couple albums thus far and this third one is just it feels you know like it belongs in the series but it's also pretty different and i've just been really digging the the different vibes and the artists that he tapped for this and i i can't help but wonder i mean i know like one of his big inspirations is herbie hancock but i think it's that sort of fearlessness to do whatever feels right musically outside of caring whether it's the most technical version of jazz or anything else, like I think Robert Glasper is kind of like that incarnation of it, at least maybe one of the most famous examples of that. We could be so I've been digging on that. I'd been like pulling up a bunch of older hip hop that, you know, it's kind of like my go to when I don't know exactly when I want to listen to, but like I know that I really enjoy those albums. So lots of us, Slum Village and The Roots. And then I actually did pick up, although I can't really talk about them too very much, it'll probably be a later conversation when I go into more of those albums because I haven't listened to them all yet. But I did actually do one quick outing to record store and uh got a few more herbie albums that i didn't have before so you know probably be talking about them next time we get together hell yeah nice. that sounds all right mm-hmm. what about you guys anything interesting 
I would say for me, um, the biggest change in my listening repertoire right now is that for International Women's Day, uh, I always like to throw on a movie for theme, theme-related movies, I should say. And so I was really into, like, Steel Magnolia. And I'm like, oh, it's one of my favorite movies. Women helping women. But I really like the soundtrack. And I don't know why, but I've been listening to George Delarue's Steel Magnolia Suite. Uh, and it's just like basically the two main themes in the song, in the movie, kind of mashed together for a eight minute just instrumental. So yeah, that's my biggest thing that I've been listening to that I'm like, oh, this is so relaxing and so, so lovely. So yeah, that's really all I've been listening to right now is that and maybe a little bit of slut pop. <laughs> Very nice. Wait, wait, wait. Well, who's the artist you were talking about last time that fit in that category? Like that had the the awesome album title? Kim Petras. Yeah, yeah, pop. yeah. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. That keeps coming up too. We had know. very good audience reactions <laughs> around the song Throat Goat. So that's excellent. Incredible. Excellent really to have glad. a return of Kim Petras. I'm glad. Uh, for me, it's been pretty simple as well. My wife and I had watched the previous two, uh, well, I guess the two latest Spider-Man movies in the Marvel mm. Cinematic Universe, mm. just because we were preparing to go out and see the third one in theater. Me for the second time, her for the first, but we haven't mm-hmm. quite got there. But I've been enjoying the scores there. But for me, the big thing was uh, throughout the work week, uh, I was really focused in on just trying to get stuff done. And, and when I really need to narrow in and get a whole lot of work done in a short period of time, I tend to just throw on some just kind of ambient music in the background. So I'm not really trying to pay attention to anything. Like it's not uh, a podcast where I'm trying to listen to what people are saying. It's not just white noise, though. So what I've been putting on was the Brian McBride, the Effective Disconnect album. Now, Brian McBride is uh, half of the duo Stars of the Lid. And I believe the Effective Disconnect was the uh, soundtrack used for a documentary on the disappearance of bees. So it was really sort of moody and intense in certain ways, but also really quiet and relaxing. And that's primarily been my listening enjoyment for the past week. So pretty minimal in the grand scheme of things, but... But yeah, pretty impactful in regards to just getting me through the workday. Yeah, let's be honest. I think a lot of us are at that point right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I just feel I feel like there's a lot of times where I'm just like, ooh, I just need to get through this day. I need some like sweet tunes to bring me through the rest because, oh God, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's It would be nice if it were something different to get me through the day. Like, oh, I can open up the window and enjoy some fresh yes. air and listen to birdsong and do that. But we're not quite there yet in Ontario. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get there soon enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting choice. I have to. Uh, I, I googled it as you were talking. I have to check that out later. It's very interesting. Like it's good if you just need something in the background, and it really does get me through just long stretches where I just need noise to to block out things and really mm-hmm. focus in on the work. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Jason, what is it about Black Radio Three that really sort of makes it fit in with the previous two, but also kind of makes it unique? Because it sounds really interesting. 
I think with uh, his choice of features, you can tell that these are artists that he very much respects. So sometimes he'll call on names that he's worked with in the past, and sometimes he'll he'll choose completely different artists. But, you know, it's not just any artist. For example, Esper, uh, Esperanza Spalding makes an appearance, I think, for the first time out of all three of the albums. And you know, she's singing in French, which, you know, if for the moment I was kind of like, oh, this is interesting. I didn't even know she spoke so many other uh, languages. But, you know, it's like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Because at first I, oh, I like I halfway thought I was like, did he bring stereo pop on for this particular song or something like that? Like something really trippy. Uh, and, you know, I was kind of surprised. Um, you know, the music's also a reflection of kind of like current events too i mean you know he had like a killer mike and this other uh, hip-hop artist b smoke on there like and you know they were they were kind of doing their things and you know kind of promoting positive uh sort of black things as opposed to some of uh you know the the negative things more recently that uh have been coming up in like the media so it was it was kind of like a bit of counterculture i suppose uh he had an artist uh who has kind of been on my radar because my wife likes him uh yeba i haven't actually bought any of her albums but like you know she does one song that's like pretty cool uh with him It's always great when, like, artists I really, really like and have been feeling lately pop up. And, you know, he had a song uh, there with her and uh, uh, Michelle and Dege Ocello where they're singing together. And they do this really interesting thing vocally where it's, like, where her is singing, uh, Michelle uh, is a kind of chant singing in the background. And then vice versa, Michelle is sort of doing what, you know, that that sort of smoldery, uh, sultry talk thing she does on some of her songs and then her is like you know vocalizing in the background when it's her turn like it was just really really cool and of course you know robert glasper and the rest of the the band are doing their thing and you know i think it's just it's very cool that i think through all the songs it's it's completely instrumental you know what i mean like it's they i think there was one song where jazzy jeff was uh scratching on it for black superhero but outside of that like and even that wasn't treated as like an instrument in as far as the credits go but like you know all the other songs they they had proper sort of arrangements with like your bass your your horns your like your strings or whatever and it it was just it's a cool album to sort of just dig into I, i would encourage you to check out that whole sort of series but yeah definitely the the current album and it's it's just a very it's it's a vibe hell yes Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into then our uh, our kind of co-main topic and talk about our movie night. This is a spoiler warning. Tread lightly as you move forward through the podcast. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle. So we were talking about watching something that was kind of in theme as to what we were talking about throughout the season. Originally, we were going to look at the newest West Side Story as it is now out on Disney+, Plus. but kind of a last-minute audible, I believe, Jason, you suggested that we all get together and watch Turning Red, the newest Pixar film released just only a few days ago on Disney+, Plus as well. So yeah, we all got together. Well, we all got together. We watched it <laughs> with our significant others or whoever, and uh, yeah, I 
think this is going to be a very interesting discussion, maybe similar to some of the other Pixar slash Disney discussions we've had recently. But who wants to kind of kick it off, talk about uh, their feelings on Turning Red first? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, Do I'm not shy to this. It, yeah, I did suggest it. I guess, you know, especially just seeing the fact that it had just come out and the fact that I well, it's kind of hard to know exactly how much excitement there is because we're all stuck in our homes and it's not like, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing a whole bunch of commercials or whatever but i know when i saw the previews some time ago for this i was like that seems interesting i yeah, want to see yeah, this yeah. For and sure. you know and nothing against west side story uh the the remake but you know i also heard a fair amount of uh panning it you know compared to the original and uh stuff like that so i just was like uh, i don't i just want to enjoy something and this just seemed enjoyable to me and man i loved this film you know i don't necessarily want to open up or uh, create smoke with the um encanto crowd i mean because honestly (laughs) that whole we don't talk about bruno thing is blowing up in a way that i definitely couldn't have predicted when i first saw the film but this film it took an interesting approach because there were many times like especially even just early on in the credits where it's like this is giving me like 90s vibes. Like I'm like, I do, is this about to like launch into like little, like in living color tropes or something like that? Like the music definitely had that sort of feel to it. And then I think sonically, they didn't use licensed music. They didn't use just plain score. They actually invented their own band for the purposes of making the story a thing. And you know, (laughs) I half expected the characters to be like rocking like uh, new kids on the block s buttons and you know like all the stuff that came along with like the original uh, invasion of like the boy bands from like the you know when I was in high school but you know they didn't quite go there but they were it had a really good feel to it and yeah I, I did have to google afterwards i'm like is this actually real like is this a band and it was like oh no they they created this just for the purpose of having a boy band to refer to but like they sounded pretty natural <laughs> as a boy yes. band so yeah, yeah you know um i i was well done pixar and unlike the other movie i felt like this story made a whole lot of sense you know i don't know how spot on it was with its portrayal of toronto but i love the fact that they shot it out like This is in Toronto. You know, that's also not pretty common in any uh, Disney or Pixar film I could think of. But yeah, just, you know, the characters were pretty relatable. Um, And it was funny as hell. Like, there were plenty of moments where I found myself, like, really, really laughing out loud. Because I'm like, oh, wow, (laughs) they they went there with some of this stuff. I mean, top of mind, the freaking, you forgot your Your pants! (laughs) I was done. I was like, oh my, I felt so bad for the character. I was like, this is ridiculous. Anywho, so I, I think I've rambled enough. What did you guys think? Yeah, I'll continue the ramble by saying three things I found about this movie. Charming, hilarious, and deliciously Toronto. <laughs> it was. They really knocked it out of the park. I think I would agree. I love Encanto, but this is my new favorite Toronto movie. Like, uh, I should say Toronto movie. 
It's so well crafted. Like you can really tell that they literally went down to University in Dundas or Spadina in Dundas and they sketched out what they saw and they translated that perfectly to screen. The only thing is this temple, it does exist, but it's not a red panda temple. <laughs> so there is like the the oldest Buddhist temple in Toronto and it's like on the side street and How it funky. just is... Yeah, but it's not a Red Panda temple. So it was really funny because a lot of people I know watched this movie over the weekend. It was really interesting. Like even last night as we were out and just talking, Red uh, Turning Red came up three or four times that everybody had seen it there. Um, and everybody was gushing about all the Toronto locations, the Toronto-specific jokes, the TTC streetcars, the old TTC streetcars, the Sky Dome, just all these things that were just so iconic and back in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s Toronto are represented in this movie. And I agree, I laughed so hard at this movie. Like, even within the first five minutes, I was just cackling. And uh, I think even my partner, who really enjoyed the movie as well, missed a couple of the Toronto notes because they uh, have only been here a couple of years. So they're still getting to know the city, but I was cackling and dying. And at one point there's a scene where there's Timbits on the table mm-hmm. and like somebody reaches for them. And like, uh, we both yelled out. They're like, Oh my God, Timbits on the table. Like such a stereotypically Canadian thing. But yeah, I thought it was charming as hell. And Abby, the short, angry Korean girl is pretty much, <laughs> I have those purple overalls. I wore them last night. I'm I'm thinking a Halloween costume might be somewhere in the future. I'm just saying. She was my favorite part of the movie. She just was so intense! <laughs> no one will help me think. A little panda. Abby, come on, May. It'll clear my mind. Just a little hit. It's so cute. <sighs> Fine. I love that they didn't insert too many top 40 pop songs of that time. I love that they created Four Town. And do you know who wrote the songs? Mm-hmm. No. Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas. Huh. I know. Uh, I was you like, know what? I did see them in the end of the credits. Yes. And I, okay. Yeah. Cool. That's what I saw too. It was like at the end, I was like, what? It just said Billie Eilish and Phineas. I think they wrote the songs. And they did. They 100% did. I was like, oh my God. And that just to me was like what really made this movie more enjoyable than perhaps other movies that tend to rely too much on those pop songs. That original music for me is, and I think we can all agree on a soundtrack podcast, that like original music does spark interest. So for me, it gets like 10 bonus points for having this in-universe band that is so integral to the story. And I love that... I mean, the stakes aren't too high, right? They're trying to get a, the tickets to the, the show. But I think it was such a nice escalation of drama <laughs> and the including of that, that it was like by the time it got to the like kaiju part, I was like, mm, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that I really pointed at last night that I'm kind of proud of and I want to bring to the table and see if you guys saw this as well. Have you ever heard of a 1980s movie called Teen Wolf? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Michael J. Fox. Yeah, this movie shares a very similar plot point with Teen Wolf, which is the family curse on the modern teen who uses it to capitalize on popularity 
and then ends up learning a lesson in the end. <laughs> I did not make that connection, but you are so absolutely right. I, yeah. It was about like as soon as they started selling the merch, mm-hmm. uh, like in the bathroom, I was like, "Oh my gosh, Teen Wolf!" <laughs> but in in a, the most uh, positive way, I thought it was such a great progression of the story. And even though again I made that connection, I was like, "This isn't a ripoff." There's definitely so much more going on here. So yeah, I can't stop gushing about it enough and i am looking forward to listening to more of four town <laughs> non-ironically too i couldn't help but think okay we've talked about movies as like a promoting point for stuff that was coming and i almost cynically wondered like okay disney must be getting ready to launch a boy band uh <laughs> you know but anyways i guess that remains to be seen hey you never know could be right there on the horizon um don what did you think Guys, I think I'm broken. Yes, I love conflict. <laughs> I uh-huh. Uh, okay, uh-oh. so be brutally honest. I know, right? Let's get, get into it. <laughs> okay. Get the laxative. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed the Toronto aspects for sure. Like mm-hmm. the old TTC cars. Like I love the old Sky Dome references, the little blue jay that appears at the yeah, very yeah, end yeah, in front yeah. of the Sky Dome. Mm-hmm. But I think this movie suffered from the same thing that I was feeling with previous Pixar films. Things like Onward and uh, what was the... Soul? Oh, Soul. Yes, thank you. Soul. As well as some of the other Disney movies that are coming out here, like Encanto. It just... I feel like it's so narrow cast for me. Specifically with the Pixar connection, very similar to Onward and Soul. It just feels like this is a such a small window of time for me and it feels so very tight in regards to its geographical sort of connection whereas you have past pixar movies like finding nemo where you have the entire ocean and you have journeys and really epic sort of kickoffs to like seeking out whatever is going on there toy story like while it it is confined in original it still kind of drifts outward to sid's house to pizza planet to the the bigger world and for toys i mean that i think if you're in that perspective that feels a lot bigger for this it it felt very small for me and there's nothing wrong with that like i think the writer was really trying to get across something almost self-biographical this Asian Canadian upbringing, very tight with parents and how that sort of puberty hits and things start to change in a person. It's not my story. I obviously I'm the complete opposite gender in this situation, so I don't understand those components of it. But I, I get that whole idea of growth once you kind of make that change and you start drifting away from what you have always known for the longest period of time. It was funny in parts for me. I was laughing out loud at certain elements, but it was more just quick chuckles as opposed to like long sustained laughter. And I just, it just didn't really click with me. I I didn't really enjoy it as much as you two. I'm glad every, like whoever's enjoying it, by all means, and love what you love. Like I'm not here to, to poo-poo on anything that people really like. It's just for me, I don't know. I was just kind of sitting there going, okay, I understand the beats. I understand what's happening, but it just didn't really sit 
Huh. The four town stuff was very fun. Like I've I enjoyed the songs and learning that it was Billie Eilish and and her brother. I mean that's really interesting, and to learn that the the score was written by Ludwig Göransson. Yes, which is, we have talked about his work yeah, quite some yeah, time. Yeah. The score was kind of a nothing for me. There were lots of similar beats to previous movies where it's like, all right, we have to bring in the the classic so, sort of cultural musical components with the modern. Like we have to all bring the the worlds together in order to save the the day sort of deal. But as a movie in general, I think it just kind of of the lower Pixar films for me. But hey, that's just one out of the three of us here. So it's very similar to like a Luca where Jason, you and I really liked Luca. Anthony I didn't, didn't. haven't actually seen Luca, but oh, okay. It, um, so it may not have been that. Then it would just be the Encanto sort of thing where you and I didn't really yeah, like yeah, it and yeah. Anthony did. But I don't know. It just didn't really ring home for me. That's fair. I think, like, w- uh, one of the points, uh, interestingly enough for me, that you brought up was your comparison to the previous Pixar films. And again, like, specifically Onward and Soul and even including, you know, Encanto in that. Um, I do definitely see a directional change in the stories that they're telling. And I think we have spoken a little bit about that. Personally, for me, with my experience with Encanto, I really loved the addressing generational trauma and kind of how that played out through the entire story. And I don't want to go on about Encanto again, because we've got about four episodes of that (laughs) of me doing it. (laughs) But to speak to your point, again, that... That shift in storytelling, I think, is very evident here as well. I think that even, um, again, I would bring up this notion that there really is no... I mean, there's a physical manifestation of an antagonist in this movie as, like, you know, the form of her mom's panda. But I, again, would think here is, like, it's a little bit of a shift away from that, you know, that physical being of a villain who is, like, the subject of this journey to defeat and Mm -hmm. so like getting away from that narrative and this whole presentation of the you know the hero finding themselves and what it is they use in the world and i think again for me what speaks to that is that ending uh and again spoilers when she chooses to keep her panda no maybe please just come with me i'm changing mom I'm finally figuring out who I am. But I'm scared it'll take me away from you. But yeah, so when, you know, at the end, when uh, Maymay decides to keep her panda and go forward with the world, I was like, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like, that to me was such an important part of the storytelling that it concluded the narrative for me that I was like, this is satisfying in a way that I think previous movies were. But I wouldn't say that even Soul or... Like, I would actually put this higher than them. I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah, like, out of all of them that have come out so far, I would say Turning Red is probably my favorite right now. It's, like, top of the list. I thought it was... The anime, I think, is the other piece of the puzzle for me that... I want to specifically talk to you guys because I know that you have a little bit more reference with the anime. But for me, I definitely caught a lot of references. I 
I think one of my favorite things about the, like, is just the cutesy eyes mm-hmm. with the glossed over and, like, the stars and, like, just very typical anime. But the fact that it was used so perfectly at every moment and I laughed each time because I knew exactly what they were referencing. Those just, like, moments in anime when the, you know, pe- and it wasn't just girls. I like that at the end, Tyler's a fan of Four Town. <laughs> right. <laughs> But yeah, when they all like have that gas moment at the concert, they're all just like, ah! <laughs> but yeah, I, I can see how it might, again, like you said, it's just definitely a story that you didn't connect with and that you weren't able to, to navigate or not necessarily navigate that you enjoyed that you were just like, okay, I get kind of points of it, but it's overall not for me. It's completely valid. And Anthony, you kind of talked about it when we were talking about Encanto and we got into the the John Lasseter element of yes. leaving Pixar Disney. And, and it seems like this is absolutely a continuation, kind of starting with that inside out situation where it is more individual stories, smaller, really small, like, and we are going to go more personal, more self-reflective, more self-growth. And that's going to be the culmination. And we continue to talk about this lack of a traditional antagonist in these movie structures i'm sure i'm just pre-programmed to enjoy the pre like the early disney (laughs) stuff where it is like classic antagonist classic protagonist one of the simple seven stories that's always told over and over i need to unprogram myself from that even more to try and because it seems like this is where things are going these are going to be the continual stories that disney and pixar are going to plot out for their future movies hopefully i'll get to a point where they click better for me but yeah, in the meantime, I'm glad you two really enjoyed it. Jason, do you want to... Yeah, not really as a rebuttal to how you feel, because, again, how you feel is how you feel, and that's valid. But on the geography piece, and I'm glad you mentioned Inside Out, because that's the first thing I thought about. Like, when you talked about sort of it being tightly confined, I mean, Inside Out was tightly confined at San Francisco. For perspective, this is an eighth grader, you know what I mean? And her world is necessarily small because I think about myself at eighth grade. I didn't know much of my surrounding town, much less a big worldly picture of things. So it it makes kind of sense that it was confined to like her neighborhood and to like her school and to her excitement over a concert. Like, I mean, that's, that's what you are at, you know, as a 13 year old, like you're kind of slightly, well, maybe speaking only for myself, kind of obsessed with those sort of things. And I would contrast my criticism about Encanto to this, where I did feel that there was a pretty clearly defined antagonist. Mm. It just wasn't really, well, yeah, it was it was the antagonist was sort of like the expectation she was expected to live up to and how having this inner beast, you know, sort of like conflicted with what was expected of her. I can't you know, the only thing I don't want to go into necessarily because I didn't live this life is just like, you know, what it's like to be sort of like a young Asian kid. I don't know, but I can sort of anecdotally say that a lot of the ones that i know of uh from like you know my grade school life a lot of them were pretty tightly focused and i think that to the ones that weren't that i could sort of readily recall i mean there was a bit of 
tension there because, you know, you're sort of up against like your parents' expectations for you. But that's about as far as I'm willing to go into that. It all felt pretty genuine to me. And I just, uh, <laughs> the I think of all the inner beasts to have has to be one of the cutest manifestations <laughs> of, you know, Absolutely. Uh, uh, that sort of thing that I've ever seen displayed. Because, I mean, gosh, if, if I could sort of go in channel into myself and pop out a furry red panda like damn sign me up but it is kind of interesting how you know they decided to monetize that yes for the temple (laughs) for the i mean yeah i I definitely was like i guess this is okay but i'm like also like isn't that kind of like child labor (laughs) well they were they were rebuilding the sky dome their stuff was going towards the hundred million it was going to cost to rebuild skydome oh which also i'm like uh anyway like again i think at that point i would be like okay there's a certain point where i'm like this is an animated movie and i have to give up my like anti-capitalist morals that i'm like this is just in canon for the universe Jason, do you want to talk about the anime component of it that Anthony brought up? So, actually, you know, when Anthony brought that up, I had to go back and... Because, like, I was just really enjoying... Maybe the short answer is no. Because I just was sort of enjoying the film. And, you know, I guess sometimes those little shout-outs are are lost on me because I wasn't going into this thinking like this is going to be anything like anime so I wasn't necessarily looking for those elements. Yeah, I mean, uh, now that Anthony was talking about like some of the examples he was calling out like yeah, I, I guess that is kind of like a trope in a lot of the anime that I've ever seen, but I think for me it was just sort of it was very very stealthily done and I think tastefully cuz you know, I mean, to the extent that like Tyler was gushing about the band, like it was more if anything, it it just reminded me of how much pressure younger kids feel to either not be themselves or mm-hmm. to to hide. I mean, and, you know, I I almost uh, Anthony I almost expected you to sort of uh to roll out some of those like uh those uh parallels, but like to just hide just or censor wait. parts of <laughs> you know, parts of uh things that make you who you are um you know because tyler had this very very tough short albeit short guy image throughout the whole film but then like yeah he he was a a closet four town like you know aficionado and it's just like well okay yeah cool um but i i didn't when i was watching it i wasn't sitting there thinking like oh yeah this is very anime like but then again i, I don't want to stereotype but i mean how do you avoid some of those references when we're talking about like an asian family and sort of like you know some of those so mm. for, for me it was more of like when i was referencing the anime stuff it was more of the use of physical comedy through animation maybe mm-hmm. yeah and so like one thing for me that uh, stuck out was when they get to the daisy mart and they see uh i can't remember his name but the guy who devin devin devin, <laughs> devin the older guy who works at the convenience store and they like realize they're standing in front of the store and that entire animated sequence of them realizing like the, almost this like the stop reaction that I find a lot of times in anime where they like, they realize something and then they all scrambled out of the screen 
And then there's this amazing moment where the four heads slowly drift back over. And I was like, that I've seen in so many anime. Like, there's just this, like, and they, they all are looking. And I was like, oh, my God, that's adorable. Like, all of them stacked on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that, I think, is what I found really cute and really referential to like it was almost like the physical way in which the characters move is very different than anything i've seen before and as i understand there's new computer technology they're using which does allow them to do more like zip 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 zip, fast zany movements and i definitely think that this movie used that to its advantage Mm -hmm. yeah and and to reference that scene that you're talking about outside the daisy mart like it has that classic anime feel where it's like the head slowly coming in and they're all piled up but then when it switches to the other side when it kind of looks at them they're all properly oriented to stack themselves up in that way whereas classically it would just be these floor foreheads and you would have no physiological ability to do that like one was standing on top of a pipe one was was standing up straight the other was like on their knees like it just it made sense the way that they did it like it was quite clever the blending of that sort of yeah, yeah, anime yeah. style into then rooting it in to the location that they're situated in the other elements that you reference that are very anime are the the sparkly eyes it's mm-hmm. when four town would come on and their eyes would get big and it would almost go very sailor moon-esque with like yes that, that sort of look to it the so kitten I, I, test the kitten test. Yeah, oh, the, the kitten, kitten test. test. Oh, that was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was amazing. And was hey, in, in May even drew in what would, I think, very easily be considered an anime style. And I thought, yes. like, when her, like, drawings were almost, Agreed. like, lifting off the yes. page. That 100%. was the, Yeah, that was definitely. But, again, it was all sort of like, okay, she's drawing and she's drawing the familiar. And, I mean, that would, it, it all made sense to me. So, again, yeah. I, I yeah. yeah. It blended in really well. For sure. And I think one of the other things with blending for me is I actually see this as a spiritual successor to Inside Out. And I feel like even the setup at the end of Inside Out is like something along the lines of, you know, she's 10 years old. What's the worst that could happen? And the insinuation is puberty. And so like I like I really saw a very thematic continuation of Inside Out of like this inside narrative of a young girl who's kind of. Uh, slowly revealing or slowly understanding the emotions in her her mind to all of a sudden turning red is looking at what do those emotions look when they're physically manifested in your body. Right. And so not literally, or sorry, both literally and uh, metaphorically, I think that was to me a really great continuation of that theme. Mm -hmm. And I think it really was a universal theme that I picked or maybe I connected with inside out because again i'm not like a 10 year old girl or i'm not like a seven year old girl but there was so much in that movie that i was like this is so uh, like i really get this i understand where this character is coming from so for me when i you know encountered may i thought the exact same thing i was like okay i'm obviously not like a 13 year old asian american uh, asian canadian girl in toronto but i'm like for me this was such a continuation of that exploration of what am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be in versus the expectation of what other people need me to be? And then I loved how that played out with her mom and her relationship and then the dad coming in. And I really appreciated that story, that universality of it, that idea of how I'm supposed to deal with the expectations of other people. And I think as a 13-year-old 
in general, I think a lot of people would be able to relate to that to say, okay, I want to do this and I want to be myself. And for me, again, when she accepts her panda and keeps her panda at the end, it was such a great narrative point for me because I really was scared that she was going to give it up. I was like, oh, like, oh, that, that made me cringe. I was like, the yeah. thought of, I was like, if the narrative goes that she gives that up, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie as much. And then she kept it. And I was like, 10 out of 10. <laughs> you know, in the, uh, maybe not to put too much of a, a point on it. I think one of the things that was so funny to me is you find out that the family is very well aware of this issue that runs in their family, but when everything started to go down with the main character, the parents, well, at least the mother's biggest fear was her period. I'm like, how do you uh, even, <laughs> like, how do you in the back of your mind know that, like, oh, we have this trait where, like, you know, some of us turn into red pandas and we might have to remove that from ourselves at some point. And the biggest thing you're concerned about <laughs> is whether the, your child is on your period. It, it, it just was hilarious to me. Um, I don't know. I, I I love that movie. And I definitely had no issue with like whether there was, unlike Encanto, where there was like some sort of logical protagonist and antagonist to me. Like that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. was gone with this particular film. And I was as willing to accept that here as I was like in Inside Out, where the conflict is with yourself, within yourself. Yeah made perfect sense to me and i'm glad you two really enjoyed it it's it it looked beautiful i love a canadian movie that's not just set in winter yes. toronto in the summer oh, is lovely point. right it's, it's such a nice city and the areas that she she occupied like going down downtown to the sky dome area chinatown is lovely yeah. her school seemed lovely the multiculturalism in that movie is fantastic oh. as well like it's just it's so good that it's well represented of the city it in a time that's not typical well it's a canadian movie we got to set it in winter and everybody's got to be in parkas it's nice that it was just a nice summery movie yeah maybe maybe i will have to revisit it with this idea of more of the internal the conflict looking at inside out sort of style maybe this will help me kind of get through and and take a look at it in a different light well one other point i just want to make and this is sort of the economist geek in me sort of coming out <laughs> i like the fact that the concert tickets actually prices actually made sense yeah you know i mean a little Agreed. bit of like uh, uh economic conversion but i'm like yeah that actually is about what a concert would yes. cost and it's crazy that these kids are trying to scramble you know hustle up the money to make it happen i don't know that to me that almost gives me like well i was in junior high when i was like trying to get my first nintendo it's like it's that same sort of like there's something you really want and your whole world is about making that happen check out number 12 he's got delts for days forget that i need lunch i'm starting to black out I think I'm getting carpal tunnel. No pain, no gain, Priya. Come on, chop, chop. Five, Girl, ten. Girl, relax. Yeah, we're doing our best. It's not enough. The concert's this Saturday, and we're still a hundred short. Ah, I knew we should have charged more for photos. May, breathe. It's in the bag. Oh, and one one other quick point about the music before we move on to the other thing. Actually, you know, I was wrong. They had very, very limited use of licensed music. And one of the things that tickled me to hell was the fact that they chose a Destiny uh, Destiny's Child Bootylicious for the, the song. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. But I also was like, okay, first of all, that's about the time period. Yeah, Destiny's yeah. Child was a big thing around this period of time. But also... 
it was like, wow, as big as Beyonce is, I wonder how they dealt with like the permission for that. But yeah, and I think there was maybe one other song that was licensed in the the credits that I saw. They had Cha Cha Slide at yeah, yeah, which was yes, like at his yes. party, crazy, uh, you know. But also, it made a ton of sense because you know the electric slide is one of those dances that will never die, and it will always be around in some form. <laughs> and sure, the kids' party makes perfect sense. Yeah, yep. for sure. Good chat. Good. This was a fun little segment. I enjoyed doing this. We need to do this more often. I'll see a brand new movie and talk about it. Uh, so I would actually agree because I really again I like that two of us loved it and one of us didn't. I think there is a certain joy in where we can be like ah Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> but I think there's also really cool like a lot of great talk about what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. You know what's up. You know what's us. Right? Shall we talk vinyl? Oh my. Okay. Let's do it. Cool. So, I think a good way to start about vinyl in this conversation, I'd like to know how you two started. How did you guys mm. get into vinyl? And Anthony, I think your story will be interesting because you've said that your vinyl tendencies are pretty much purely soundtrack based. Mm. So I'm intrigued about that. Whereas Jason, it sounds like you've got just a ton of different vinyl in general. So. Maybe we start there, and then we can get more into the discussion about what I should be looking out for. Oh, a good segue. That is a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, I can jump in Please first here, if that's it, okay. Yep. So, um, how I first actually got into vinyl is because when I was growing up, my parents had a lot of records, and a wide variety of records, but also very specifically country records. Ugh, like, for dude, some I'm reason, sorry. I know, it was like, and they were weird-ass shit. It wasn't even like the mainstream stuff, like Garth Brooks or Reba McIntyre. It was like the Travis Tritts and the, like, God, Crystal Gale. Yeah, like, okay, so they went of, back with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was, like, just really, like, not what I would be interested in. But I definitely remember growing up and just obsessing over my record, my parents' record collection. I would just, like, and I had a Sesame Street record, and there was this Joan Rivers record that I wasn't allowed to listen to, but I would just stare at because I was like, <laughs> oh, it's, oh, I'm not allowed to touch that. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, by the time I kind of, when we moved to a new house and cassettes and CDs really started to take off, I kind of left records behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then around 1999, 2000, I came across my parents' old record player, not working, tried to hook it up. And I just couldn't get it working. And I must have spent like two months on it. And it was like an old, like 1980s, really nice record player. And I just, I did everything I could. The internet was still in its basic, its infancy. So I really couldn't build on it. But I knew I was like, I really want to have a record player. I was like, I would love to have this record player. Uh, And so it just never worked out. And uh, I I went to university the following year. My parents threw out the record player just chucked it and the receiver but they kept all the records for some reason (laughs) like my dad like put them in a bin and i was like okay fast forward to like 2014 2015 and i uh had been getting into records again and like i don't even know what sparked it but i think a friend of mine dan had kind of come in and he had a similar story about how he like you know enjoyed records as a kid and then his parents had actually kept 
their record player. And so he ended up going home one weekend and bringing it and sending it up at my place. And so we actually ended up getting it working. And so the very next day we went to the St. Lawrence Antiques Market and uh, I went record hunting for the first time. Nice. And I was like giddy. I was like, so excited because I had it was a whole new experience. I'm like... I kind of had percolations in my head of what I was really looking for and, you know, even just random stuff. I was just like, oh, my God, I want the Beaches soundtrack. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, I want, like, uh, Blondie's album. I want, oh, my God, just like, you know, just all these excitement and ideas. But incidentally, at that time, I was hardcore into Nirvana. And I was, like, just obsessing about a lot of Nirvana for some reason and obviously other things are coming in and out, but I definitely remember specifically being really into Love Buds. I was just really into that song, and then... I went record shopping that day and I came across Shocking Blue. Shocking Blue is a Dutch band uh, who are probably most well known for being covered by Bananarama, Venus. Oh, okay. So the song Venus in the 80s is a cover. Is a cover. Get yeah. the fuck out of here. I did not know that. <laughs> I know. And so Venus is a cover of a 1969 rock song, like psychedelic rock song. And. It is a trip to listen to because the 80s one is so poppy and fun and like, Venus! Yeah. The uh, Shocking Blue 1969 one is very Grace Slick, very like... She's got it! And it's got a very different vibe. So here I am at this record store and I come across Shocking Blue's first album, an original print from Holland. And I like pick it up and it's uh, 25 bucks. And my eyes go wide and I'm like, oh my God, this is a Dutch band that I like actually know about. And I flip it over and the first song I see is Love Buzz. Believe me when I tell you You're the king of my dreams Please don't deceive me I don't guide my life by universe, uh, you know, signs from the universe or like, you know, I'm like, give me a sign and I'll go that direction. But every once in a while I do have experiences in my life where I'm like, well, this is odd that everything happened like that. So everything just kind of lined up that I found this shocking blue album with these two songs that I really knew and I didn't know were covers. And it was an original pressing of this Dutch release of shocking blue. So I paid $25 and that was my very first record I ever bought. And from there, I will say I entered the dark years. (laughs) The dark years are where I spent a lot of money on vinyl and I spent all of my money on every single vinyl I ever wanted. (laughs) But that's a a story for another episode. 
But that's kind of like my intro is that I did have like sparkly, you know, sprinkles of having vinyl throughout my childhood and into my adolescence and even into my adulthood where I tried to, you know, get in my record player working. So, you know, finally, when I was able to get to that point where another person had access to a record player and they shared it with me, I jumped right on board. I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. I miss I love having a record player. And yeah, so after that one album, it was Pandora's box was open. Neat. Jason, what about you? So for me, my foray into vinyl was pretty disjointed, just like Anthony's was. You know, my father had a, I don't know where it sits in terms of like hi-fi lore, but I I remember very plainly that it was a Zenith uh, hi-fi system with like four speakers. It was like this very big like thing that took up you know the wall that it was pushed up against and two of the speakers were sort of stacked on top of each other this big console in the center that played eight tracks and like you know it was the sort of record player where like you could stack a few and it would drop one by one as it went through i didn't necessarily obsess on whether that was cool or not i just knew it was there but like yeah he had tons of eight tracks tons of 45s and you know tons of uh, full length EPs unfortunately and uh, I share this in common with uh, Anthony he had more country than I care to acknowledge <laughs> you know and like the the weird shit. not well some of it wasn't weird i mean you know like the crystal gales and like the travis tritts and the the kenny rogers were big in country at the particular time that he had them mm-hmm. um but then like bull crap like marty robbins and just like songs that i hated to hear but then he also had a lot of like disco and like you know some r&b and stuff like that and i remember as a kid one of my memories of vinyl was so there's this record label called buddha i think they've since gone out of business ages ago and i remember this more so from the 45s than actual uh albums it was like this really scary looking picture of buddha on like this sort of like purplish reddish background if you google it you'll see exactly what i'm talking about and that image used to freak the crap out of me as like a little kid it just was sort of a scary image and i used to be kind of freaked out by that but aside from that you know yeah lots of disco i think some r&b but not as much as you you know you might expect otherwise and then yeah country that i avoided like the plague and then i kind of remember one of my memories of my father's uh, vinyl collection was that there would be things like Playboy stuck in the middle of them, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, cue puberty or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was that. But much like Anthony, aside from the albums that I remember, like having, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller, the, yes. the Chipmunks uh, Christmas album, yeah. maybe one or two others, but I didn't have that many. And then when my parents split up, like I was sort of separated from that. And that was... It, like, for me, cassettes was kind of the thing from, like, childhood up until uh, maybe at or after high school. Because, like, I didn't get my first CD until I was on my own. And I actually got my first CD before I had my first CD player. And then, you know, through wonders, like, uh, abusing Columbia House and their whole, like, you know, 10 CDs for, like, a buck yep. type thing. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually buying my own, like, you know, I sort of grew my CD collection from there. It wasn't until somewhere in the 2010s that I 
think, you know, after Crystal and I had been together, she actually went out and, you know, like this was when I was starting to dabble with the idea of like DJing again. again. She went and bought me a record player and it was oh, a cra- nice. it was a crappy one. It was like one of those like real cheap ones that, you know, you would get like that claim to convert like to MP3s and all that stuff. But it definitely wasn't gear that I would have bought for myself. But of course, I didn't expect uh, Crystal to know that. But, you know, I kind of rocked with that for a while, plugged it into my system. I don't even remember what the first record was that I got when I sort of was getting back into it. But it kind of just exploded from there. And I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to call it the dark years, but I did uh, upgrading my record player and all that stuff. Like, yeah, I've spent a decent amount of coin on vinyl because they're, they're not cheap. You know, I mean, unless you do find an event like a sort of a swap meet or yeah. Yes. like used a vinyl sale or something like that it can get pretty pricey because you know a brand new record can be 25 30 bucks usually in that range i still buy records here and there but again it has to be something that really really sparks my uh fancy and i want to check it out i don't know if it breaks out to like a record or two a month but there was definitely a period where it ramped up hardcore but not just with new albums it was like there's a place not too far from me that uh like a, a firehouse that would like monthly have like big sort of like crate digging sessions and even like when i go to the record store they have like a pretty large used uh record section and you know i mean i might get a new record or two but i also would dig through that and see if there's anything that sort of caught my attention and buy that too so that's that's kind of where things are nowadays I think the one thing that I really enjoy about vinyl is something else Anthony pointed out is like the connecting of music. I I wonder how far back you have to go before stuff is truly like original, but finding out that like some song that you really liked was actually done by some group like, you know, a few decades ago. It's it's a pretty cool thing. So Well, uh, you've talked about that a bit, Jason, with breaks and like randomly finding out that Herbie Hancock was sampled in... A later by like Jay Dilla or exactly. like you know like a lot you know Jay Dilla is great for that like he did that a lot a lot of different artists that would have never been on my radar otherwise I I learned through his production techniques for sure but just finding out like just how connected some of that stuff like when we were talking about Shaft and the the fact that Dr Dre used Bumpy's Lament for his music like finding stuff like that it's just kind of like. Now, again, I, you know, going back to that sort of generation of music and wondering what in the world they were pulling from is a question that sort of percolates in my mind every now and then. But unfortunately, vinyl has a history up to a point. You can only go so bar- far back with that. And before that, I don't know if there's a way to sort of appreciate old really really old recorded music because even like the the type of vinyl that plays in like phonographs or whatever i don't think i've come across one of those yet and then what predates that i i don't know like i don't think there is anything that predates that so you know So as the individual on the call here that it has no sort of 
current connection to vinyl. I have the past experiences as you both do. My parents had tons of disco and pop. That was their thing. We had Saturday Night Fever. We had ABBA. We had Blondie. We had a bunch of like really good. No country, fortunately. <laughs> that seems to be the, the Oof, break there. Yeah, yeah, you like, say, yeah for real. <laughs> but then my friends, like we would have like 45s and we would listen to like uh mm, yeah, yeah, it's Clearwater revival whenever yeah. we go over to houses so we'd have like the mini discs and of course then there's like the mini disney discs and storybooks and stuff so i have like a small i, I have a, a remembrance of it but for me classically my musical collection has always been i need to improve to the next thing like i got all my tapes and my usual like all right i got my pink floyd i got this this and this then i just rebuy it in cd and now i've rebought it like, well, I haven't rebought it digitally because I've converted it, but I've up converted it to the best quality and whatever I could do. So in looking at this situation now, this feels like, all right, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take a bunch of steps back to to vinyl. And I'm wondering what sort of is the allure to getting vinyl as opposed to getting modern media now? Like, what is the allure for you to, aside from the connective tissue and the enjoyment and all that, like mm. just the physical media of it? Why vinyl? I, I think I'll just jump in and say that sometimes it could be a combination of things. There is some stuff that, believe it or not, just doesn't exist easily on CD. Or if it does, the source material for that CD may be such that you actually might be better off listening to it on vinyl because that was like an original recording there, whereas like the, the source for the CD may be kind of questionable it may not have come from like the actual masters of the song it may have come from like somebody trying to re-record a record as well as they could the other side of that though is there is something a lot more deliberate about playing a record that maybe the only thing that could kind of match that is a cassette but then cassettes have their own sort of sound quality issues you know when you put on a record yeah you can drop the needle in between songs and start like a particular point but at least for me i don't find myself doing that all that often because it's easier just to start from the beginning and let it play out the entire side which means a couple of things it means that i have to be good enough with the album to actually let that occur it also means that it's more active. I'm listening to the entire album. I'm listening to the entire side. I actually have to pay attention to, well, how I started it. But then also when it finishes, I don't have uh, any turntables that automatically stop. So it means that I, when I hear it get to the end of a side, I actually have to get up, lift the needle, flip the side, and start it all over again. I think the thing that you lose with that compared to a CD or even, you know, MP3s now is you can go to whatever song you want to hear, which is great if you have a couple favorite songs on an album and you don't care about the rest of the album. Cool. You know, you can hear exactly what you want to hear, but that also probably means that generally speaking, you're not really enjoying the entire album, which I guess is, you know, it has its place, but at the same time, it's like, it, it kind of makes you appreciate the fact that there is a period of time where the music had to be uniformly good, or at least good enough to get you to be okay with listening to the entire album, as opposed to skipping around to specific songs you wanted to hear. So that's the, I think, for me in a nutshell, which maybe wasn't so much of a nutshell at this point. Huh? Anthony? Well, call me nutty, because I'm about <laughs> to shell out the same advice. <laughs> that was awesome. 
No, Jason, I think you like summed it up perfectly, which is the album experience. And that's really what I love about vinyl, is that when I am listening to a vinyl album, I am paying attention. I am engaging with it. I am using it purposefully. I am listening to it purposefully because it's different than when I just throw on something in the background that is continuously playing. And when I play on Spotify, then it just goes and it just Mm -hmm. randomly plays with something. But when I specifically have an album, uh, to Jason's point, I don't skip ahead. I'm not like, oh, I don't like this song, I don't like this song. Because why would I then buy the album? If there's a single, then I'm going to buy the 45 of it. Or I'm going to listen to it in some other streaming service. But if there's an album that I'm really enjoying, and this is one of the things I actually have to go through and do with my current collection, is because several of my purchases in the dark time was uh, I just, if there was a song that I liked by an artist, I'd buy the album. And then I'd be like, oh, I don't like this album. Like, I like this song. And so there are several albums I have to go through in my collection, and I'm going to get rid of them because I'm like, I'm never going to listen to this. Like, Mm -hmm. on vinyl, it's just not something that I'm going to be engaging with. But, again, to Jason's point, one of the things that I like to buy vinyl for is because many of the things I want to listen to are not available on streaming services and or haven't been re-released on CD. That's where my soundtrack fetish comes in, is that, like, I really enjoy specific soundtrack albums and I'm not going to find them on Spotify. So that's really, for me, is like similar to what Jason's saying, is like I really find the experience of putting on an album is even physically different than a CD. Whereas like I push play and I walk away. Not with vinyl. I'm like, yeah, if it's a four-disc album, then I actually have to flip it four times. Or if even it's just a flip once, you know, halfway through the album. It really is a nice way for me to continuously check in with the music I'm listening to and it gives it purpose. It's deliberate. I really like that word. It's very deliberate to listen to a vinyl album. Uh, And even if I'm putting on something fun and frisky for a party, you know, a compilation of just 80 songs, then that even has purpose of like, uh, I'm going to like flip the record when there's a, you know, a stop in the music and it's a little bit of a lull for a conversation to happen. I don't know. It just, there's specific things that uh, come with a vinyl experience that I really enjoy. And I think it really amplifies my interest in it. So where would one start? Where should one start? I should say, I've got a system like a speaker system. We've got our CD mm-hmm. player. We have our CDs. Where would one begin? Well, I would say if you're starting with a receiver, first of all, actually before any of that, budget. (laughs) (laughs) I would say if you are going to realistically buy a record player, even without a receiver, I would say you're looking anywhere between six to $700 for a decent player that one is not a Crosley because... I mean, we can go into that more in depth, but they ruin records because they're so, yeah, they're mass produced and they're very cheap and they don't have proper weights. And so it just chews up your records. It just like literally scratches them to shit and it just is a really bad vibe. So I would say realistically, if you're actually going to commit time, energy and, you know, money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you're looking at six to seven hundred dollars considering that you have a a receiver and speakers already. Okay. Then the next thing I would say is, again, what is your receiver capable of doing? Because 
receivers are different for different outputs. And again, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would need to look at whether or not your receiver has a preamp. And if it does not have a preamp built into it, you would have to buy an external preamp. Because when speakers are generating electricity, it is not always enough to power the sound of a record player. Well, you have that in reverse, but yeah, your point is accurate. Yes, it's, sorry, the other way around. Yes, sorry. Because there's too much power? No, too little. Uh, Too little, yes. The source, the, the, the amount of electricity that a record player actually pushes out is pretty tiny in the Thank grand you. scheme of things and and it needs to be more to get the full proper sound mm-hmm. so i guess don i would say do you have a preamp anthony yeah thank you for all of that i would say that in a way you're gonna have to tell us what you have mm-hmm. right because there's a lots lots of different ways that you could sort of approach this but at its source in order to play anything you have to have the source you have to have something to amplify it you have to have speakers sounds like you have something to amplify it and the speakers, but I I would kind of need to know more about what you have to figure out what to recommend. Because sure. you mentioned that this is sort of like a custom-built bi- rig that your father-in-law built for you. In making some kind of recommendation to you, it may sort of be important to figure out, okay, well, this is kind of what I have. This is what it compares to, to figure out what to plug into your system. Because with any sort of stereo system, it's only as good as the weakest link. You know what I mean? Like if you got this rockin' stereo system, but then you buy this crap-ass like record player, guess what? When you play vinyl, it's going to sound crap-ass because it doesn't match everything else. But because you all didn't build that system, you're like, well, and when I say build, I don't mean actually building, but like you didn't go out and buy all these things and put it together yourself. It, it may not be that intuitive to figure out what actually matches your setup. So at least for me, it answering that question will lead to more questions of you because it's like, well, what exactly do you have and what makes sense? And I can provide that information because what I've done is I went to each of our components there and I've, I've got serial numbers and brands and all that. Okay. So here's here's what he has. So he, he built everything around this system and he just – he provided us an amp, a 12-channel amp, a uh, ultra high-precision loudspeaker management system, and he's got the, the power, the power distribution system. And then what we're doing, what we're using to play audio is he's provided an, an Oppo DVD slash Blu-ray player, basically. And we've just been plugging things through that into the system to listen to. So I suppose the DVD player would be acting as the receiver. Okay. this What you have sounds even more complicated than I was kind of envisioning. So I'll tell you maybe about my own, and maybe that'll help you make sense. So cool. like... At the heart of mine, I have a Marantz receive an AVR receiver, which I actually added to in, uh, and added an external amplifier because if you know much about receivers, they'll often give you a wattage sort of rated for two channel listening. But then like if you're using it in a home theater application, the actual power you get from that thing is some factor less because, you know, the amplifiers inside are driving more things. Mm hmm. Aside from basically providing the juice for the system to the speakers, I have different sources connected. I have 
my record player. I have my Xbox. You know, I have my Switch. I have actually a Wii U hooked up that I never <laughs> haven't used for years. But all these things plugged into, and of course the TV plugged into it. And depending on what I'm listening to, I'm using different modes. And I'm basically, for some things, using the receiver as basically a preamp. But then for other things, using it as the amplifier and anyways my thing's a little complicated but all that to say that yours sounds even different from that because what it comes down to is what piece of your gear has inputs for other things to be plugged into the Um, cd player i don't know of too many cd dvd transports because that kind of sounds like what you have that also act as preamplifiers that that's kind of a new thing to me which leads to a whole bunch of questions of well okay does this have like a digital to analog converter built into it it probably does if it's a cd dvd player but then does it also have things like a phono stage or phono preamp built into it to accept a input from like a record player that's a question you may have to answer but if it doesn't but it allows for some sort of like regular sort of like RCA input of like a red and a white or something, then you almost certainly need to have a a phono preamp. But then the question becomes, well, do you get a record player that has one built in or do you have an external one? The answer is probably you want one with an external. You know, I mean, the thing with audio is that the more something does everything, the less good it is at doing everything than like if you had separate pieces doing those things but again this just gets really complicated by what you just described because in uh, a different world you would just have something relatively simple like either a a preamp and an amplifier or an integrated amplifier or a a, uh, audio visual receiver as sort of like the source taking supplying the juice and then you'd have all these different sources plugged in i the answer is it may depend for you do you like the sound of your setup now? Like, I mean, does it sound really good? Yes. Then probably all you'll need to do is get a decent enough record player and a decent enough phono preamp. Okay. And then just look for some spare uh, source to plug it into on your DVD slash preamp thing. But yeah, it's it's really that latter part that's sort of thrown me off because it's like, you know, it was sort of like thought I had an idea of what to recommend to you, but it kind of varies. I don't think you would necessarily need a receiver or a sep- you know, an additional amplifier or anything like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, you'll probably find that, like Anthony said, a one worth having is probably going to start from about that range. Then it's just a matter of how much you really want to spend, because guess what? Like any the other... The sky is the limit. The sky yeah, is like... really the limit. You can spend $500 or the the canadian equivalent or you could spend a grand or you could spend thousands of dollars you could spend five figures on a record player uh it it really just varies but best believe if you're willing to go to some of those higher echelons the the other things that you put in that sort of signal chain need to match Mm -hmm. so you're saying i should buy one of those little like wind up vw yes. buses that has a needle yes. in it that just that just plays and yeah and just sit that on the record and uh, yeah, no. or even like yeah i don't know like you know those like clay pot turner things Ooh, okay nice. uh, you know what you can probably get one for like 150 bucks put the record on just put the re- the needle on it's like i think crazy. what i'll do is i'll go flintstone style i'll just get a toucan <laughs> and just 
It's a living, and just what? bend the toucan bills down. It's a living. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Do that. Get ready. Okay, so I think the technical side I'm going to have to look a little bit more into. Tell me about your purchases of records themselves. Like, what do you do when it comes to your searching? Are you looking at just the random finds? Are you looking to, like, when you first start, when you first started yeah, getting yeah, yeah. into it, do you, are you replacing, like, stuff that you already have? Is there anything specific that you sought out? I think for me, it was a lot of record digging at stores that had used records. So that to me was my really first intro is that I would really love to go like to the St. Lawrence market or the used record shops in Toronto and go through and like, you know, specifically look and for find old 80s albums or 70s albums that I was really looking for. And then I would like kind of graduate to buying new albums. But I still love crate digging and I still love searching and I still love, you know, like scanning and going through. So I found in the beginning, again, record stores were a good intro and they were a good start. But uh, what I say I've, I've graduated now is to like antique shops, antique malls, old flea markets, like things like that where they're off the beaten path rather than, you know, just like even just you know, chain stores or even just independent record stores. Going into, like, rural spaces, I actually find is a big gold mine. So uh, I think that any city is a good city to find records in. If it's got a record store, I'd say check it out because there's most likely going to be something in there that's interesting. You might not buy it, but there's at least going to be an experience where you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I found that on uh, on vinyl. <laughs> right. Yeah. For me, it's a lot like that too, but I... I would say that there are certain albums I definitely just had to buy, like, new. They were albums that I knew I just loved and, yeah, wanted to have that way. One thing we didn't really touch on before, too, is, like, another motivation, that maybe there's a couple, album art. That's something you don't. That's something you don't get to appreciate with digital very music true. very much. I mean, because you're looking at little tiny ass thumbnails, and what is totally lost in either streaming or even digital music, especially when it's not just like done by a producer, sort of in a uh, recording room or something. But like, you miss out on like when there's instruments. Like, who the heck is playing? Yes. Like, are these artists that I want to you know like seek out in other spaces or something like? that liner notes are huge and they're easy to read when it comes from vinyl whereas yeah you might have it with the cd you could read it there too a little more difficult uh i mean obviously the text is smaller and then non-existent for streaming or buying like an mp3 from you know any place you could buy an mp3 from so there's that too but even just appreciating the album art some of that stuff is iconic, epic, can't do that so well. I mean, there there's some albums that are works of art in and of themselves. On that note, I'd like to just share that my idea for Drag King names would actually be Lionel Notes. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> you know, one thing we don't, we it needs to be acknowledged here too, is that Music goes out of print sometimes, whether yeah. it's a CD or anything else. Like sometimes you can't find it any other way uh, because it was produced. But unless you're buying one of those original CDs or albums or something like that, 
good luck. You know, you have to wait for the reissue. One great thing about crate digging is sometimes you'll look up on original copies of stuff when it was actually produced. And there you go. You don't have to search anymore. That kind of brings me to another question, because obviously vinyls like really had a resurgence now. Are there pitfalls to the current vinyl situation of like buying new like reprints? Like, do you lose stuff in this whole sort of, well, we need to clamor to get into the industry and, and make sure we cover a vinyl section? Or are people doing new vinyl properly? Should I always be looking for old vinyl? Are new artists actually kind of doing things correctly? Are they kind of adhering to the classic sort of idea of vinyl? It depends on the artist. Yeah, yeah. I would say it's very individual because then what it, then it even breaks down to is, you know, if new independent artists are trying to get their vinyl pressed, where are they getting it pressed? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, if it's going to be a rush job, then it might be a shitty vinyl. Or is it like a case where Adele, you know, you know, her album was going to be so huge and they like pushed through uh, advance order copies of hers which backlogged other albums. So albums that were scheduled to be released on vinyl had to get pushed back six months. So like you have different variations of vinyl within the industry where there's no standard. Quality-wise, you could even get into discussions about, uh, you know, global industries and like the pressing plants in Japan are world-renowned as the best, you know, some of the best recordings in the world. And so like when you start to like look at those differences and it really is like... It is bigger than you ever know, Don. It's more oh yeah. Big. It's like, and I would even say, even for this episode, I was like, I don't think there's going to be an end result where we're going to be like, yeah, you should get this. It's going to be like, all right, this is part one of fourteen. <laughs> right. We're going to need to like consult with audio technical people at your local stores. We're going to need to like have video chats, looking at your setup. It's. I don't know. It's it's also one of those things. It's a hobby, right? right? And this is part of the time spent is researching, looking, comparing, ensuring you're getting something good. Like it's almost like you would be doing the same thing for say model trains, right? Like you'd be looking at what are the specifics, what are the differences, what are the best, what's the worst, what do I avoid? And so along with the hobby, I think that's what we're really trying to uh, you know, share with you today is that there is like so many options that it just thinks you always think that it's full so straightforward and then you're like well here we go down the left turn lane again <laughs> you know and it might be it, it might be kind of analogous to like racing a car or something like that like you know there's the layer of like finding maybe a classic car and restoring it but then there might be like a layer of like oh i might actually want to go out on a track and race it well it's like okay you could work with sort of the stock thing there but then like well how do you make it better Audio systems are very much like that because, I mean, we just, we haven't even given you specific brands to look out for. Then there's the aspect of, oh, well, you know, I can actually change out the cartridge. Or, you know, Mm. the platter on the record player can be upgraded to be a material that's less prone to vibration. Or, you know, the, the tone arm itself can be changed and swapped out or upgraded. Like, there's, there's so much nuance, uh, (laughs) in this. One thing I think, well, I avoided, and it sounds like Anthony avoided too, is trying to make the comparison between vinyl as a source and CDs as a source. Honestly, if your system is good enough, there's not going to be much of a difference between the two as a source. Most of the, the record sound has a lot to do with the quality of the components you're playing with, like in how clean the, the vinyl is. Maybe that's something you don't have to worry about as much with the CD, 
But a lot of the things that people attribute to the sound of vinyl is really just sort of an indication of like, yeah, get that puppy on like and clean it somehow. Because guess what? You know, there's like dust in the grooves that may be causing it to crackle and whatever. I mean, but otherwise, if your gear is good enough, it's you're going to be hard pressed to say, oh, I'm listening to it through a CD or I'm listening to it on, you know, vinyl. It's more like, yeah, well, good luck trying to find that on CD. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of avenues that you could definitely get into if you're also prepared for some of your most amount of money you've ever spent on single objects. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think that's definitely, I was like, I definitely felt like an adult when I started (laughs) because I would be making largest purchases of myself, my life, and I'd be like, oh my God, I must be really responsible right now. (laughs) If I'm spending this amount of money on one item, I think I have to be responsible. I hope. (laughs) Did you guys have any anything else that you think we should cover in this one? It's, this feels like it's going to be, yeah, like Anthony said, a couple more conversations. For sure. It's going to be going ongoing, I would say. I was just going to say, because what you could spend on this sort of thing is near infinite relative to what you actually can spend on this thing, I guess I would just say that focus on, if you're committed to buying a, a record player, just what sounds good to you. And in this day and age, you may not be able to go to hi-fi shops or whatever and check out a whole bunch of different things. If you can't do that, at least do some research about what people are recommending in that price range. And chance, chances are, if you, you know, you roll the dice on something that was recommended in the range you're looking to spend, you're probably going to be fine. But you also may find that over time, it's like, well, how much better could this sound? Or, you know, like, what could I do to make this experience even cooler? At that point, you you know, you deal with those questions as they come up. But if you're going to change something, change something at a time. Don't try to do it all at once, because it's only at that point you kind of know what effect did this have on my experience? And is there something I want to change about? Or is this just fine? For sure. And there's so many different factors that I think are going to go into this decision if it even is on the horizon for my wife and I because there's there's this fantastic idea of getting into vinyl and being able to access things that I wouldn't normally be able to access and all of the stuff that that you two have talked about over however many episodes we've recorded now and the and the joys and the benefits of vinyl and Anthony finding really rare soundtracks and things that he wouldn't and you getting all these really great box sets and I get the the vinyl allure is absolutely there it's just a matter of now putting in the effort putting in the research determining what what I want to do what we want to do and then once we take the plunge Fortunately, I have access to really good gurus of this right now, but obviously the technical side of it, unless you're able to see the system and get a real sense of it, when it comes to the the more sort of, what am I looking, more around the philosophy of, of vinyl and and some of the actions that I wouldn't have really gotten a sense of prior, like you talking about cleaning vinyl a few episodes ago. That would have never really been in my mindset because classically, and I think this comes out in the documentary Scratch, like the record was something you didn't touch. You didn't, you put it on and you walked away from it. You didn't play around with it. You didn't break the knee. Like you just didn't do that. So there's a lot more effort, it seems, and a lot more awareness about what you have to do with vinyl to make sure that it's 
correct and good to go. And I think that'll be great information that I can glean from you and Anthony as as we go forward. And I can tempt your fate even more by saying there's a large amount of Chrono Triggers pressings coming out right now. Like, left, right, and center, buddy. Left, right, and center. It's just like... the. Three disc, four disc. What do you want? Do you want the extras? Do you want the demos? Come on, we're gonna give it to you. Well, on that itchy topic, we should probably <laughs> stop there. And I think this is gonna be something we're gonna revisit for sure yeah, in the future sure. as we make the decision. If I am taking the dive into vinyl sometime soon, obviously there's gonna be tons of questions I'll have for the two of you. And then just looking into like the research that I'll be doing, I think this will be a really fun topic to return to. Mm-hmm. But thank you very much for both of you for that really good conversation. I think that's good information for me to have, and it'll it'll help us in the future. And you thought that was going to be a quick conversation. Yeah. I, and when you were putting <laughs> yeah. the agenda for this, I was like, there's no way we wrap this in like 30 minutes. No, or yeah, now. exactly. Multiple parts. Well, I think that's where we'll stop the episode there. We will continue on with our sort of planning out for this between season stuff and look forward to lots of fun future conversations until we get into a full season three here of whatever topic we're going to pick. It's going to be exciting, I know. But of course, we want all of you uh, listeners to continue to listen in season, out of season, whatever on the podcast app of choice that you are listening to, uh, to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, wherever you are listening listening please continue if you listen to us on apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review uh also you can find us on our social media accounts at even the score pod on twitter and instagram come find us there share our episodes share our tweets and uh and our posts really appreciate you extending our fan base and getting uh, more ears out to our uh our lovely little program here of course not just for the conversation on vinyl but for every conversation that we have i want to thank anthony and jason thank you to you both for all of the lovely chats we've had so far. You're welcome. Sounds like more conversations to follow. Yeah, for sure, bud. Indeed. Well, we will wrap it up there for this episode of Even the Score. Thank you very much and take care. I guess it looks as if you're reorganizing your records. records. Yeah. Um, what is this, uh, chronological? No. Not alphabetical. Nope. What? Autobiographical. No fing way. Yep.